Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week in the Canadian Revolution, we are going to discuss the Revolutionary Party. Now, this is actually a fundamental concept uh, of Marxism and Marxist theory in the struggle for the working class uh, to win against the capitalists. Um, you know, Marx talked about this even, uh, like, what do you think he was trying to do when he wrote the Manifesto of the Communist Party? Um, he was, yeah, trying to organize a revolutionary party. Uh, and unfortunately, this is one of those concepts that has, I think, largely been lost on the left in many countries. Um, so we are discussing this today to help help revive the understanding of of what this is to to hopefully encourage you to help build a revolutionary party. Um, and with me to discuss this question is uh, Julien Arsenault from the editorial board of La Riposte Socialiste uh, in Quebec, our French paper. Um, he, Julien, uh, a couple of years ago, wrote an excellent article called The Class, the Party, and the Leadership, How to Organize Revolution, uh, which you can find on, well, on marxist.ca, on our Canadian website, on, on uh, marxist.com, uh, the international website, and also uh, we sell it as a booklet and it is also available in French in marxist.qc.ca. Maybe we'll put the links in the in the in the notes for this episode. So I highly recommend reading that article if you want to understand what a revolutionary party is, what revolutionary leadership is, and why we need it. Um, so yeah, it's I'm I'm happy to have Julian here with me today to discuss this. He has studied the question. He wrote this excellent article. Um, yeah, and quite often, uh, maybe maybe the way to to start this. Uh, well, first off, welcome, welcome, Julian. Hi, Joel. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. I guess how to first start this off. Uh, maybe let's put to bed uh, something that that comes comes up quite often from people: is revolution is not possible. You guys are dreamers. People don't want revolution. Um, uh, yeah, revolution is not possible. Well, I guess first off, the best, the best argument against this is what's happening around the world for the last number of years. Is revolution possible? Yes, it happens all the time. It seems like every year there's multiple revolutions, pretty much one every couple of weeks, it seems like. Uh, and this is because, yes, the conditions are ripe, are rotten ripe for revolution. What are the, what do I mean by that? I mean, the, the crisis of the capitalist system of the world cap the world economic system the capitalist system is is uh is creating is making a situation in which working class people hundreds of millions of poor working class people can no longer live continue to live as they were previously uh living conditions are going down with the first generation i think uh in hundred a couple hundred years that's going to live worse than the previous generation. This, these are all elements to show that the capitalist system is in crisis and it is provoking revolution. And that is ultimately the cause behind uh, all these revolutions you see in Peru recently, Sri Lanka, or actually ongoing in Peru, in Sri Lanka. Um, you had the Arab revolutions, you had subsequently Sudan, Algeria, um, Lebanon, uh, you have you've had revolutions all over Latin America in the last 20 years and also more recently, as I've mentioned, uh, you even had not really revolutions, but close to it mass movements in the United States. Uh, you've had these climate strike movements you've had. So is revolution possible? Of course, it's possible. You're seeing it occur all over the place. And how this relates to the Revolutionary Party is 
Well, has any of these mass movements or revolutions won? And we're going to discuss that. Why, why don't we win? Why doesn't our class win? There have been many revolutions, but we end up with the same old crap, maybe with slightly different packaging, for lack of a better term. So, I mean, maybe I'll toss this one over to Julian. That's why he's here. But yeah, why, uh, why don't we win? There's many revolutions and mass movements, but, but yeah, what do we need to win? What's, what's the problem here? Yeah, well, well, as you said, it, it seems like a, not a month passed without learning about a new mass movement somewhere. And this is in, incredibly inspiring. But, but sometimes you get the, the argument. People say, you know, oh, it's, people are, are stupid or people are conservative. Um, you know, they, they, we, can, we, can, we can never win. That's, that's often an argument against revolution. But as, but as you, you correctly said, uh, there are revolutions all the time that put that argument to, to rest. But but then yeah why why don't why don't they win? I think I think we to understand this we need to to look at how uh, revolutions unfold and and how class consciousness uh, de develops among the working class people this consciousness that that uh, we need to change the world and I think that there's an aspect of this we, we can say generally speaking that class consciousness can be somewhat conservative and many people don't they just want to live in peace. And who, who can blame people for that? They just want a, a peaceful life, get on with a job, a family, or whatever. But capitalism increasingly makes that impossible. Uh, you know, when workers are forced to, to heat or eat, uh, you know, to, to skip meals, this, this is not normal situation. And these pressures of capitalism, they bring, this is what brings revolution. And we see, a, and actually a revolution is when the consciousness of the masses catches up with reality and it catches up with a with a bang you could say not gradually people get more and more radical but the same people that are normally apathetic or uh, or a um, apolitical will suddenly go in the streets get active and, and want to change the world and that that's what a revolution is it's when the masses the ordinary people that are not involved in politics that are never asked their opinion rise up to change Change, uh, change the world. And that doesn't happen all the time. You know, the, the world is not in a constant state of revolutions. You could say they're exceptions, but they're inevitable exceptions. Uh, and and they, do, they do happen. But then, yeah, they, they do happen. You mentioned Sri Lanka, the movement in Peru. Uh, there was Lebanon also not, not too long ago, Kazakhstan even a year ago. But yeah, the, these revolutions don't end up winning. And it's and, it, and there is a tendency to blame the masses, but I think, I think no, you see courageous people joining the struggle. Actually, this movement in Peru is, is astounding. I would really encourage our, our listeners to, to go on marxist.com and read our, our articles about this struggle. You have uh, mil, you know, hundreds of thousands of people taking the street, fighting the police that, is, that are you know, tear gassing them and whatnot. Uh, it takes a lot of courage to do that. So, so no, it's not, it's not the fault of the masses that revolution don't win but inevitably in a revolution there's a battle of ideas there's people that propose a way forward people propose another way forward and this battle is never decided in advance but what happens in almost every one of these movements we talked about is at a certain point there's either no leadership at all no ideas are provided no way forward is provided or an organization or groups provide the way forward that is not the right one and bring the movement down a blind alley, bring the movement uh, away from the workers taking power with compromise with the ruling class or, 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 thing, or things like that. That's what we see, you see in one movement after another, the, the leadership, what ends up being the leadership of the movement takes the movement in the wrong direction. And, and, and we often say as Marxists that you know, the, the crisis today in the working class movement and for that matter, the crisis of humanity is a crisis of the leadership of the working class movement. Everywhere you see that leadership acting as a break on mass movements and on revolutions. So, so I would say this, this is a, a general features of, of, of almost all of these movements we've, we've mentioned. Yeah, well, I think you summed it up there correctly. That, yeah, it's not the problem of the masses and the workers, as you quite clearly see. I'd say... Most of these movements that we're seeing around the world over the past number of years, it's it's actually 
the absence of leadership, a lot of spontaneous anger right, expressing itself, very progressive, actually. Anger at the situation, at the capitalist system, either consciously or unconsciously, at the government, at whatever force they can direct that anger, the powers to, that, that, that exist. Um, <clears throat> but also sometimes against leadership, <laughs> against bad leadership. I think of, uh, yeah, anyway, I think of a lot of movements in which there's, there's existing leadership that wasn't leading. Like you had the Gilets Jaunes in France, Yellow Vests, a mass movement of poor people fighting back against the government of Macron. And the first, the, the, the trade unions didn't want to really, in most areas, didn't want to have anything to do with it, denouncing it, whatnot, not providing any an ounce of leadership for this movement. So in many ways, this movement was against the official leadership. Um, so yeah, this is the, the crisis today. I mean, as Trotsky said, I think he said this in the 1930s, but it rings true today is a crisis of the leadership of the proletariat. And explaining that is also important. It's not just bad individuals in positions of leadership across the labor movement, the student movement, and the in the in the the workers' parties or organizations. Um, but yeah, it's it's really a result of an objective objective process that most of the unions and 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 the the big left so-called left-wing parties that really don't play much of a leadership role today like the social democratic parties, labor parties, and even communist parties in some countries that don't play much of a leadership role, or if they are, they're, they're pushing in the wrong direction, allying with the parties of the establishment. How did we get to the situation where most of these parties and these unions and things um, that are failing to play that leadership role? Well, 100 years ago, they were led by Marxists and revolutionaries. Many of them were created by Marxists and revolutionaries. I'd say most of them or like maybe even like some sort of like yeah class struggle activists that anarchists even that believed in the class struggle and fighting against the capitalist class and fighting for a new system against capitalism but now after decades especially in a country like Canada and the west uh of decades of boom and which and and class peace to be honest uh you have this conservative layer in the movement bureaucracy even I'd say that we talk about that is become somewhat ossified or whatever you want to call it and, and is, is, is actually moved so far away from class struggle that they're just used to the regular humdrum uh, negotiations with the boss. You get, you, we say 4%, you say one, we end up on 2%. But guess what? Nowadays that, you, that does not work. That does not work. The crisis of the capitalist system, uh, the inflation rate currently in Canada is at 63 it was at 8% last summer for basic foodstuffs. It's double that. So you want to sign a two and the, and the bourgeoisie are pushing for the similar thing, 2%, 1% you're in your union negotiation, for example. But I think, as you said, this is even more clear in a revolution because you can have this in the trade union movement and the lack of leadership in the movement of the trade unions is why wages are eroding. The leadership is overseeing an erosion of working class conditions and is not leading the fight, even though I think most working class people want to fight back against this and would gladly join a movement to fight against this. But when you have a revolution, the question of leadership is all the more central. It's what do you do? The revolution doesn't last forever. Millions of working class people have basically essentially, you know, like you said, revolutions are not something that people do every day. It's the exception. The cat is out of the bag. <laughs> people are trying to transform society and it doesn't exist forever. And that question of leadership is absolutely fundamental when there is a revolution. And yes, either due to lack of leadership or bad leadership. I think we've seen some leaderships in Sudan. The leaders did a deal with the military dictatorship and we've seen where that's end up. You're back to the same thing actually after this fantastic revolution we saw a few years ago in Sudan. Um, but yeah, there's many, many examples of, of, of bad leadership and lack of leadership. So yeah, a crisis of leadership really sums it up. Uh, but Julian, you want to add on yeah. here? Yeah, well, if, if I can bring an example I remember from a few years ago, I was I became a Marxist um, around the time there was a revolution in Burkina Faso in 2014, overthrew a 27-year-old regime at the time. And it was really an exceptional moment where the, the masses were on the move, they were active, they were in the streets, and you really saw this contradiction between the, the, the masses of workers and youth and the press ready to fight and ready to take over society. But the leadership, the, the people that found themselves at the head of the movement 
not doing anything. I remember there was an interview with a, just an ordinary guy in the streets. And he said, he said something, you know, I'm very angry at all the opposition parties. They told us to come and protest. And I come today, I take uh, off work, I have a family and kids, but I still come and nothing happens. Uh, I'm very angry. And that's really, that really summed it up for me. It's, this is the contradiction. The, the, the people were ready to fight and the leaders did nothing, had nothing to propose, no alternative. And I think it comes fundamentally, you, you see a layer at the top of the movement of the left and the trade unions. They don't believe in the power of the working class to change society. Uh, they, they're afraid of the power of the workers and, and they, they don't believe fundamentally that the working class can, can run society. It, it reminds me actually uh, at, at the time of uh, the, the movement in Greece, like Greece has been in the throes of, of mass movements for, for a decade really, especially in the early 2010s, there was one general strike after another and the, the, the party Syriza, a left-wing party uh, originally anti-capitalist was thrust into power. And, and one of the leaders of the party, Varoufakis, he's a famous academic. He, he became the, the minister of the economy. And he was saying that he, he didn't believe you could overthrow capitalism. And the best thing we could do for now was to save capitalism, make it a bit better and prepare to eventually be ready for socialism at somewhere in the future. But this future never comes for these people. So you have people that, that don't believe in the power of the working class people. And, and this is what is miss, this is missing in the equation. And, and, and I want to say something like we're, we Marxists are not saying that, you know, you can magically bring about revolutions and the masses are always ready to rise up. The only thing missing is, is, is a socialist leadership. We're not saying a leadership can do miracles, but, but the trend that we see is in one country after another, you see these moments, the masses rise, they are ready, they are thrust by the crisis of capitalism. To, to try to ch take power and change society. And then the, the leadership is not up to the task. So this is, this is the contradiction that we need to resolve between the increasing willingness of, of the masses in, in, in most countries to, to want to change the world and the, the, the leadership that is blocking this process. Yeah, so I think that leads in, right into the question of the main question today. Well, then what is a revolutionary party? Like what? What is that exactly, and how how does the Revolutionary Party uh, solve this problem? I suppose. I guess before, I mean, I'll turn it over to you, to Julian, maybe to talk a little bit about this. But I would like to address first the negative connotation. Sometimes I think, especially amongst young people today, you say the word party, especially your revolution. You say, "Oh, we're building a revolutionary party," and some people might think, "Ah, party. Uh, what we know about parties is not so good." So those bastards in the parliament, <laughs> just either one, it's a, it's a useless talk shop, or two, when they are making decisions, it's very bad decisions. It's not good for us. We don't like those parties. Um, so I think, you know, we got to put that to rest. And also there's a concept too, is like, oh, uh, I guess it's kind of an anarchist thing against leadership in general. It's like, if you're trying to build a party, you're trying to dupe everybody and 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 betray basically and and we can point to all of the bad leadership to prove that leadership is bad in general um so yeah i want to put that to rest it's usually connected to this idea that marxists want to build a vanguard spooky it's really bad a vanguard um at the end of the day really what this means is um well many people listen to this podcast well you're getting active in politics maybe you already are and the question is, what do you do? Well, different layers of the working class of the population draw different conclusions at different points, uh, at different periods. And what Marxists believe, and this is all the way back in the Communist Manifesto, if you read in the second part on communists and proletarians, where Marx discussed that the communists, we are members of the working class. Marxists are members of the working class, organized in a specific, uh, we have to organize ourselves to uh, that, you know, communists understand the general lines of march, that, that we understand the direction of the movement and the logical conclusion of the movement. And we argue for ideas that are going to help the movement to win. And, it, and honestly, if that's ultimately what a revolutionary party is. And, and if you're not doing that, what are you doing? I mean, I, I don't see like go home then, you know, <laughs> we, we have to. 
fight for the best ideas in the movement, right? And so that's ultimately this idea about the negative connotation. I mean, we're not a parliamentary party. We're not here to take power in the parliament and get, and get sucked into useless debates and, and, and all that. We're fighting to build a mass party of the most advanced elements of the youth and the workers to fight to win over the rest of the population, the rest of the masses, to the socialist transformation of society. Um, entirely different, the wor most worthwhile cause that I can think of. But uh, yeah, Julian, you have some things you want to add on to this? Yeah, well, the, the, the idea to, of building a revolutionary party, I think, I think comes from the, the fact that um, the, the spontaneity is insufficient in revolutions. Actually, most revolutions do happen somewhat spontane spontaneously. There's a, there's a mass upsurge that often surprises even the most uh, revolutionary layers that, that didn't expect it. it. It sometimes comes when you least expect it. So, so there's an element of spontaneity in every revolution. But then what happens? Uh, inevitably, there's debates, there's uh, assemblies, whether it's you know, neighborhood councils or in trade unions or in workers' council, what, what have you. The masses create these, these forums where they, they discuss and debate where the movement is going. So, so inevitably, some people will propose certain things. You know, someone will draft a, leaf, a leaflet that suggests the general strike. Someone will draft the, the leaflet that suggests to go back home. So, some people play a leading role. Inevitably, leadership is it's a fact of life. And, uh, you know, I, I was a, a student uh, back in the day at UCAM, which is a, uh, you know, historically been a very left-wing university at the head of student movements. And there's a long standing anarchist tradition. And let's say, you know, the, the anarchists, they lead, whether they don't like, whether they like the word or not, uh, have a lot of anarchist friends, they take the mic, they suggest a general strike. That's, that's leadership. Uh, and it happens in any movement. There's this battle of ideas and it's not decided in advance. So we say, well, we're socialists. We believe in the workers taking over society, nationalizing the commanding heights of the economy, starting to build a socialist society. And we are open. We will openly defend these ideas, unite like-minded socialists, and consciously, openly defend these ideas in the movement. So unite around the program, certain ideas, and form an organization on this basis. So that's what a revolutionary party is. And I think, um, and I think that this is just because you know people that believe we should just reform capitalism are organized. People, the, the ruling class is organized we need to organize as well. We socialists need to, an organization, a vehicle to bring socialist ideas to a peer that I'm not yet convinced. And, and that's what the Revolutionary Party is. And, and it's not just the, the working, uh, generally speaking, as Joel, you, you correctly mentioned that not everyone reaches the same conclusion at the same time. If that was the case, why would we even hold this podcast? We could just sit home, relax, have a beer, and just wait for people to, to reach socialist conclusion. That doesn't happen automatically. You need people. It's a struggle of living forces, real people, real socialists like, like us that bring these ideas and convince, uh, win over people. And forming this organization, I believe it helps accelerate the process ultimately to, to bring workers to, to socialist consciousness if we can build this, this force, uh, this pull of attraction in, in the movement. But yeah, if it was spontaneous, there would be no need to be here, frankly. Um, so, so, so I think it's fully justified to try to build this organization to overcome this contradiction. Yeah, exactly. I think you summed it up there. Um, I'd like to very briefly take a, you know, deal with um, the most famous example and the most, therefore, actually important example, positive example of revolutionary leadership is the Russian Revolution of 1917. Probably heard of it created the Soviet Union, the Bolshevik came to power. Um, <clears throat> why do I say this is the most important? I think this is, this is the most fantastic event in human history. Why? That's a crazy statement. That is a over-the-top statement I have made. Uh, well, I, I'll defend it that in the sense that all other previous revolutions brought a new clique of ruling class to power. And that's what we're seeing today. All these revolutions that we've just laid out, what happens? Masses rise up, millions on the street, general strike, shut down the economy maybe, uh, mass protests for months on end sometimes, 
and what happens? Either the government is not overthrown, or you have another government of rich people come to power and continue on ruling, usually with brutal repression of the movement. The difference in the Russian Revolution in 1917 was that this was the first time that the poor workers, the workers and poor peasants, the oppressed masses actually came to power. So it wasn't just a revolving door of a different faction of the ruling class or another bourgeois guy or something coming to power, but it was the masses themselves through their own organs, um, the Soviets, workers' councils coming to power and at least beginning the socialist transformation to society, of society. What happened later is a whole nother discussion, but this is, this is really fundamental. So for us, we need to study, study, well, why are all these other revolutions going down to defeat? But this one, the workers actually succeeded in coming to power. And that really is why this revolution, we study it and why it's actually very important to study. So I guess I'll just throw the question to you, Julian, then what's so important about Russia? Was there something specific about Russia? Maybe about, I don't know, the countryside. Maybe it was the weather. I don't know. Was it the... <laughs> <laughs> the, the specific uh, something in the specific cultural makeup of Russia that led to this situation. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think so. And I think, uh, you know, earlier we talked about some people that, that blame the workers for, for defeats of revolution. So you would have to elucidate this one. Were the Russian workers special or, you know, more advanced than the German workers, the U.S. workers? Uh, why did the Spanish Revolution in the 1930s fail? Was it because the workers were more dumb than the Russian workers of, of 1917? That, that doesn't make any sense. The, the, there's no fundamental difference between the working class of Russia in 1917 in itself compared to, to the working class of Germany, of Canada, the US, of France, or wherever. But, but there was a difference, uh, not in the working class itself, but in, in the revolution, the presence of a revolutionary party. That made all the difference in the world. And I'm talking about the, the Bolsheviks, which uh, you may have heard about. And th this organization was able to, to, to channel this mass movement of 1917 and organize the seizure of power by the workers and the peasants who were organized in, in Soviets and workers' councils. And yet, yeah, open this new chapter, try the attempt to build a socialist society. So this was the main difference, the, the, the presence of a revolutionary party of the Bolshevik. And, and, and you look at all these revolutions, that's the main thing that distinguished Russia. But, 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 that, but then there's another aspect of this question is the Bolsheviks didn't come from nowhere. They didn't magically appear. Uh, they didn't form spontaneously in 1917. This was an organization that, that had existed for, for 15, 20 years, if not more, it, you know, it, they were part of the Social Democratic Party of Russia. There's a whole history around that, but, but, but the long story short is, is this organization had been building for 15, 20 years a group of conscious Marxists studying Russian conditions, studying the perspective for revolution, studying the history of previous revolutions, you know, reading Capital, reading the Communist Manifesto, and applying this to, to the Russian conditions. And it reminds me of something, you know, we hear sometimes today that people say, oh, fight back. You, you guys care so much about ideas, about theory, and you publish books and all that. It's, it, and, and, you know, if, if, if you look at, uh, at how the Bolsheviks did it, it seems very glamorous. You know, took power and led 150 million of people to, to, to change the world. And yes, it's, it's, it's a big thing. But you look at the, 15, the first 15, 20 years of existence of this organization, it was not glamorous at all. It was... Uh, you know, reading groups of circles of workers, studying theory, um, you know, passing books in secret, you know, discussing Marxist ideas and how they applied. And this, this is the starting point. You need to start with ideas and how they translate into a program, into to concrete demands. But they did start with ideas. They started with the theory of Marxism. And, and that's the, and that's a key to, to the success, the, the, the ideas, and then to train a group of people uh, that, that understand the ideas and want to win over their peers to it. But even in, in 1917, uh, the, the Bolshevik party 
within the party, there was debates over what position to take in the revolution. And in the party, Lenin in particular, played a tremendous role when he, rose, he, 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 um, he raised the slogan, all power to the Soviets. The, the Soviets need to take power uh, in order to, to, to make the revolution successful. And not everybody agreed with Lenin inside the party. So even in an organization of Marxists, there was a need for, for clear leadership, for ideas um, that could lead the, the workers to power. But Lenin himself didn't come from nowhere. He, he spent 20 years building the organization, studying Russian conditions, winning over younger people, uh, learning from the workers. So all this process was key to, to making the Russian revolution, really, the existence of this revolutionary party that has spent years uh, working to build, to build itself up to, to play that role. So, so that was the key difference. Yeah, so the fundamental question here is the role of the Bolshevik party then, the role of leadership in the revolution. Um, actually, and in one way, I would say that actually it was, it was uh, less favorable in Russia in the sense that the working class was smaller than Germany or, 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 or Britain or whatnot. But the role of having that, that, that far-sighted, genuine Marxist leadership played such a key, it was such a key question that avoided massive defeats and, and, and horrible situations actually that could come from having bad leadership or no leadership as we, we've discussed. Um, moving forward, otherwise we're going to run out of time. So I would just say, uh, linking that back to today, we'll just say a few words. So today, you know, the crisis is worsening. Uh, we have this inflationary crisis. Everyone's living conditions are getting worse, whether you want it to or not. Um, and it looks like the bourgeoisie are actually provoking a recession uh, to try to get the inflation under control, which means job losses, cuts, this massive government debt is going to be a problem and there will be mass austerity measures. They will try to make us pay for this, for all those hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars worldwide that they showered on the bourgeoisie to save the system during COVID. So all of these worsening conditions will we've already talked about these mass revolutions around the world it will create more and more of this 10 times even in a country like canada class struggle mass movements revolutions radicalization as people seek a way out of the dead end of capitalism but now they have this that objective process of capitalist crisis and the 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 social revolution that it will provoke we need to look at that but then we also need to look at What's the state of leadership of the working class in Canada today? It's very bad. So we have many examples of this. Corruption, you had the Jerry Diaz example, the, the, the ex-president of Unifor, the largest private sector union who was taking bribes, who was corrupt. Um, you, have, uh, you have across the board pretty much with almost any leadership, you have... Uh, uh, betrayals, essentially. Workers, for example, a good one of this is the, the BCGEU, which is public sector employees in, in, uh, in uh, British Columbia. The, the workers voted for COLA, which is cost of living adjustment, to have their wages keep, keep pace with inflation. And the leadership signed a deal in the back room, uh, and, the, and the members uh, voted on it. And I think the vote was like 53% or something like that. Like they weren't happy after all the leaders just basically pushed them to accept it. So it's, it's actually leaders leading in the opposite direction, not leading a fight for better living conditions against the bourgeoisie, um, but for their leaders to accept bad conditions. Um, so yeah, we don't believe that you can just snap your fingers we, and, and we have the leadership can just snap their fingers and then all of a sudden you're going to have proletarian revolution. But we do believe that in some situations, the leadership can essentially is, is the key element. Let's put it that way. A positive example, also a little bit negative here, is the Ontario education workers strike that we saw last, last fall. We've talked about this. We had a couple episodes on it, actually. You should go back and listen to them. Um, but yeah, you had Doug Ford trying to take away the democratic right to strike and the right to collective bargain from the workers. In that situation, the leaders, they uh, played, basically they were playing chicken with the government. They didn't want to back down. In that moment, they could have backed down. And that would have been the worst because it would have just created a precedent. Fortunately, 
they actually stood up and said no, and they called an illegal strike. Basically, they went on strike. They had two days of illegal strike, and the government backed down. So I think in those situations, you had a positive example of leadership. Now, unfortunately, I said it was somewhat negative. After this, they had a fantastic situation in the bargaining, where the whole population of the province was behind the workers, who are some who are some of the lowest paid public sector workers in the province. And the workers, uh, or the leaders of the of the union, basically told their workers to accept what was essentially the same deal that the government had proposed before, a really bad deal that would lead to wage erosion. And they had a they wouldn't let the workers even contest it. Um, so basically, this is the question of leadership. I believe if they wanted to, they could have actually mobilized for a mass movement against the government, and there would have been that working class support and anger of the rank and file there. Um, so yeah, the question is then. What do we do? You know, you have widespread either negative leadership or bad leadership in the movement. The, the crisis in and of itself is creating uh, the conditions for mass movement. We've already talked about that. And it is pushing leaders to the left. You're seeing that. But the question then is what, what do Marxists do? What are we doing? What is, what is building a revolutionary party? Um, yeah, no, Julian, you want to come in here? Well, yeah, but before I go into that specifically, I just wanted to add in a couple of things because it, the, the struggle of the education workers in Ontario is, is a really interesting example of a specific situation. Yeah, you, you, you said it, we can't snap our fingers, but you had this enormous anger. And especially when the backward legislation was announced by Duck Ford, th this anger was, was palpable. But, but, and, and correctly, the leaders decided to defy the law. But, but it was a situation where it was in the hands of the leadership. And if the leaders had said, oh, we can't defy, it would have been very difficult to overcome this conservative uh, position of the leadership. It's not easy to just muster up a new leadership that can lead in another direction. It has to be done ahead of time. And then you look at what happened after when, when the same leadership that had defied the backward legislation uh, took all the tools in the box to argue for a, a bad deal. Uh, they, they played, they, it showed the negative side of the role of the leadership. And, and it was extremely, actually, we, we commented on this, but 27% of the workers rejected that deal, which in the, these conditions, I find it's quite incredible with, when all the leadership is pushing, you know, we need to accept this, we cannot fight. Um, this is quite incredible, but it shows that it's not easy to build an alternative leadership for, for the labor movement and for, for the workers. It, it takes time to build this and it's even more true in a revolution in a revolution it's extremely hard to to build a revolutionary or organization it has to be done ahead of time this is actually actually back to just the parenthesis on russia uh the bolsheviks were built years and years ahead but a few years later there was a revolution in germany and a communist party was formed in the middle of the revolution and it became extremely difficult for for the communists in germany to to have to, to, to lead the revolution to victory. But, that, but that's, that's another topic. So I think, I think a, key, a key in this question is there's no time but now to build in advance a socialist organization, a socialist revolutionary party. And, and how we do this is it's, there's no magic formula, but you know, we need to find among the rank and file of, of the workers, of the trade union and the youth, these people that have reached the conclusion that capitalism has to go and needs to be to be replaced patiently win over the people ones and twos here and there and build up in this way a, a, a socialist organization in in the labor movement that can be and on this basis we can challenge the current leadership become a pole of attraction win over our peers in the unions in the youth in the student unions and and to be this voice that can uh bring a socialist uh, leadership to to the movement it cannot be done artificially actually one thing is you see that sometimes, I, I know some of them in Quebec, some people that are socialists, they, they say so, that are leading trade unions. But, but the problem they have is they don't have a, a, a base. They, they, they are individual isolated socialists in the movement that come under extreme pressure from the right wing of the unions, from the ruling class itself to, to hide their, their socialism or to, to, to leave it at, at the door. And, and even some, some some very well-intentioned people end up, you know, bending to this pressure because it's not easy to resist the pressure of the ruling class if you're an isolated socialist. You need a backbone in the form of an organization to be able to sustain this pressure and consistently bring 
bring these socialist ideas in the movement. So, so this is what we need. We don't need individual socialists to parachute themselves in leadership positions of trade unions. We need to unite in the rank and file the, the like-minded socialists and build this socialist opposition in the movement and, and ultimately challenge the current leadership of the movement. It's not an easy task, but it can be done. It has been done in the past. And, and there's, no, there's no better cause, really. Yeah, so this is what we're doing today uh, as Fight Back, as La Riposte Socialiste, and as the International Marxist Tendency. If you're interested, uh, we encourage you to get in touch with us to help us build the Revolutionary Party in Canada um, to prepare for the revolution and the mass movements that are coming. In order to do this, we have actually a fantastic event. So the, just the rest of the podcast here, we have a bit more time. We're going to focus on this. We have coming up on the weekend of February 18th and 19th. If you listen to the podcast, you will know this already. We've mentioned it. Um, we have on, yeah, I said the weekend of February 18th, 19th, in about four weeks or maybe less, we have the Montreal Marxist Winter School. This I cannot uh, overemphasize enough. If there is an event that you wonder, maybe you want to get involved in a, in, a, in a Marxist organization and I don't know, you know, Montreal, maybe I don't, maybe you don't live in Montreal. Maybe you don't really want to go there. If there is an event that you are going to sacrifice for, you're going to spend a little bit of money to travel to or to an accommodation or, you know, we have some basic fees to cover to, to fund the thing. Well, this, this is the event. This is not just any meeting. This is not just some small meeting you go to on a campus or something like that. This is the biggest Marxist meeting in the country. It's one of, maybe maybe it is the biggest Marxist meeting in North America, I don't know. Um, yeah, and we've built this up over the years. So um, I highly encourage you to register for the Montreal Marxist Winter School, which you can do at marxist.ca slash school. Register today to participate. Um, before we really get into the details of what's going to be discussed there, though, which we're going to do shortly, I would like to take a short break, uh, commercial break, to promote our uh, paper. Part of building a revolutionary organization is having a revolutionary paper to argue the case of revolutionary Marxism amongst the working class. So, yeah, we have two papers in Canada. Uh, we have Fight Back, which comes out every two weeks. And yes, over the past week, just in a week, we've had we had 15 new subscribers. So yeah, I'd like to thank you to the new subscribers. We have Adam, Nicola, Brandon, Aiden, Jack, Matthew, Leif, Irfan, Michael, Kent, Ahmed, Shiran, Nanad, Emily, and Lander. Thank you, comrades, supporters, friends, for subscribing to Fight Back Magazine and helping us build the revolutionary press. And then our other paper, La Riposte Socialiste, our French language publication, uh, comes out every month, and we got three new subscribers. So we have Diego, Felix, and Alexandre. So thank you very much for subscribing to La Riposte Socialist. And I encourage everyone listening to this, if you're not subscribed, or maybe you're only subscribed to one, but you know, you should subscribe to both. Uh, why not practice either your English or your French and learn revolutionary Marxist pol uh, politics at the same time? Um, so yeah, please go. You can go to marxist.ca slash subscribe to get your subscription to uh, Fight Back and or La Riposte Socialiste. So yeah, uh, back at it. Um, yeah, as I said, the Montreal Marxist Winter School this year. Well, I actually start helped to start organize, or, organize this thing in the beginning in Montreal, like I think 13 years ago or something like that. Uh, and at the beginning, it was just, and this is a very key thing the role of ideas when we first started this i think we were a dozen people in a small room discussing ideas and if you look if you look back at that you think these people are going to precisely nowhere they're too small but we stuck to our guns because we knew that we had good ideas and that these are ideas that can change the world and are absolutely necessary ideas for the working class to emancipate itself uh, and we built up the school and it kept increasing in size. The last time we did it in, all the way up to is past 200 people participating. Um, uh, can't remember when we, when, when we surpassed the 200 mark, I think in 2017 or something like that. Um, but yeah, the last time we had this in person in 2020, we had 265 people attend the Montreal Marxist Winter School. 
And then obviously due to the pandemic, the last couple of years have been online. But that being said, we've had, I think online, we had over 1100 people each time. So it's, it's fantastic. But now back in person. So this is, this is very important. This is the first school, Montreal Marxist Winter School that we've had in person since 2020. And I'm happy to announce that we already have over 300 people registered and we got almost a month to go. So you should be one of these 300. I think we're going to get over 400, maybe more, and you should be one of them. So please register for the Montreal Marxist Winter School uh, this year, uh, marxist.ca slash school. Um, and I, we thought that connected to this, the theme of the Montreal Marxist Winter School happens to be, maybe it's a coincidence, I don't know, the Revolutionary Party. And we have eight presentations uh, on this. And I know we thought today would be useful for, we're going to give a couple minutes of sneak peek introduction to each topic to maybe get your curiosity peaked to get you to register for the Montreal Marxist Winter School. So uh, I don't know, uh, I could jump right into it, I guess, unless Julian, you have a few things. I mean, Julian's in Montreal. How are the, how are the mobilizations for the Montreal Winter School going on the ground there? Yeah, it's, it's going well, actually. And I and I'm, I found this incredible that we have already have 300 people with a month to go. Actually, I remember my first school was 10 years ago in 2013. And I believe, yeah, it was like maybe 25 or 30 people in the room. Uh, but, but, but it did play a big role with, with me. I remember there was a presentation in particular on the Quebec national question. And, and I was still, you know, uh, I could say a left nationalist at the time. I was not a member of the organization. But it, it really got me to think. And, and uh, you know, fast forward the year after, I was, I was a member by the time of the 2014 winter school. And, and, I, th and I think, yeah, this is a, this is a big event. And, and I really encourage people, it, it plays, a, it, it's, as Joel said, the role of ideas and, and, and the importance of ideas. It played a good role for me. I know I'm not the only one. Every year, there's some people that are like, the winter school, it's a, it really convinced me. And it's really something to be in a room with 300 socialists and communists uh, so I really encourage everyone to, to come to that. But yeah, we've been postering uh, in, um, in neighborhoods, at SEJEPs, universities. We're having um, tablings all over the city. Uh, we're, we're on the war footing to really make this the, the biggest ever, which it already is. But uh, yeah, I think 400 is definitely within reach. And I'm, I'm really excited for this school. Yeah. So yeah, as I said, um, yeah, we're going to give you a sneak peek of the presentations. Uh, which you can find a list of them on the website at marxist.ca slash school. Um, and there are recommended readings there as well, which highly encourage you to, to, to dive into that. So you're prepared uh, to learn ultimately about the Revolutionary Party. So the first session with this in mind, we already talked about the Russian Revolution and how the difference here was the existence of the Bolshevik Party. Well, we thought that therefore it's actually of, uh, of prime importance for us to learn of how the Bolshevik party was built actually. And a key event, uh, so we have a topic at the winter school called, what is to be done? The Bolshevik Menshevik split. Now you may have heard about this. Um, it's, a, it's a very important event in the building of the revolutionary party was the, uh, it was the, the, the kind of differentiation within the movement between what was known as the hards and the softs. And actually the Bolsheviks if you don't know, the word for Bolshevik in Russian means majority, was simply meant the majority, but the Mensheviks was the minority, that Lenin and the Bolsheviks uh, won the majority and the, in the second Congress of the, of the Russian Social Democratic Party. And, and this kind of created the bait. There was two kind of tendencies in the movement. Uh, and they, have, they officially split later, but this was very a key event in differentiation and, and, and making the, having the clear ideas that of, of how the workers can win power. And actually it wasn't nothing because the Bolsheviks were the ones as, Le as, as Julian described, Lenin famously said all power to the Soviets. Well the, well, the Mensheviks actually did not want that. And actually you could see the roots of this earlier where the Mensheviks were the ones that were arguing for a rapprochement with the liberal capitalists, thinking that we should, the liberals have to lead and we follow and socialism comes way later down the road. And then you see this in the role that they played during the revolution. So yes, this was a question of revolutionary leadership. And if you want to know how the Bolshevik party was built 
and the, about the Bolshevik Menshevik split, you must come to the Winter School to hear this presentation, which I'm sure is going to be absolutely fantastic. Um, but yeah, we don't have a lot of time here. So I think moving on, the next presentation we have, we already talked about the paper, but the, the in defense of a revolutionary press. So a fundamental concept of, of building a, a revolutionary organization is having your own paper in which you can argue your politics, uh, your, your ideas, the revolutionary Marxist uh, perspective amongst the working class. Um, but yeah, Julian, you want to give a bit of a introduction to this topic? Yeah, well, it, it is somewhat connected to, to, to the Bolsheviks. I, I mean, Lenin was actually the one that's, that uh, argued the most clearly and vociferously in favor of the, the need for a, an all-Russian paper to, to, um, to help build the Marxist organization, build the Bolsheviks. And this, this is a, the, the tradition of having a revolutionary paper has been somewhat lost in, in the movement. Like very few organizations in Quebec and Canada actually produce uh, a, a physical paper. And, and this, is, this is a long-standing tradition in the labor movement. It goes way back to the first organizations of the working class, for example, in Britain, the, the Chartist movement, which, which we have a lot to learn about, uh, was producing papers because the ruling class would not defend the interests of the working class in their own press. They have their press. We need to have our own voice. I'm pretty excited for this presentation. There's also these arguments sometimes oh, with, with social media, you know, we, we really need a paper or you only need to look at the ownership of social media and how they, they periodically censor the, the left to, to see that we actually need our own independent press. So, uh, and, and you know, this shows me when you have your press, you have something to say, uh, something that you put into translate into articles and you test them in the movement. And this is vital to, to build a revolutionary organization. So that, that one I think is gonna be is gonna be very exciting. And actually another one that's connected to, to this question of the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks, we have this presentation, uh, why did the Soviet Union collapse? Which, which I think will be, will be very interesting because we talked about today about, uh, about the Bolsheviks taking power, but then we need to ask what, what went wrong? Why did it collapse some 80 years later? And I think, and I think in, in many ways, this, this presentation will be a negative example of the role of, of the leadership because uh, the, the Soviet uh, bureaucracy, it, it's incredible. They had state power in one sixth of the earth, plenty of natural resources. You know, wh why couldn't they build socialism? Why couldn't they, they, um, they carry the revolution to, to the building of a socialist society? I think there's very important lessons there. And, um, and actually, we're, we're pretty uh, lucky, actually, for this one, because we'll have uh, Carmel Jules Legendre come from the French section of the IMT, uh, come to Montreal to present on this topic. Jules is, is extremely knowledgeable about history, has been active in the IMT for at least, at least over 10 years. So th this is going to be a, a very interesting one. Cool. Thank you, Julian. Well, moving on. Um, yeah, the next uh, presentation... Uh, that I would I can introduce here is the lessons from the Indonesian Revolution. So I think many people, many listeners, I think many people in Canada don't that don't know that much about Indonesian history and definitely don't know that much about Indonesian revolutionary history. So yeah, we are happy to have uh, a comrade, an Indonesian comrade, who is going to speak on this. Um, and yeah, this is very important. Actually, it's a negative example of what bad leadership can do. Sometimes you think that it's not that big of a deal. Oh, whatever. Don't nitpick. It's okay. But this, uh, in Indonesia, in the 1960s, they had the most massive communist party. It was the, actually, I believe it was the largest outside of the USSR and China. They had huge potential. And there was a massive class struggle. There was like basically a dead end of capitalism in Indonesia. And, uh, and it is linked to the Soviet Union in a sense, because Julian already talked a little bit about the Stalinists, the Stalinization of the Soviet Union had an effect on the Indonesian revolution. Uh, and they actually advised the Indonesian Communist Party to, to not upset the liberal bourgeoisie. Kind of reminds you of what I said about the Mensheviks. <laughs> it, it, don't upset them, they're not your enemy. Uh, and essentially what they did is they disarmed the working class when faced with what eventually came was a military dictatorship headed by um, Suharto, and he led a military dictatorship until the 90s. Uh, that and a massive genocide of communists. There's a communist genocide in, in, in Indonesia, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of people actually, uh, a, a terror 
which you don't hear about that often because it's killing people that capitalists don't like, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a very important historical event to learn the lessons from of what not to do. Because like we said, we had a lot, of, we have a lot of revolutionary energy, a lot of uprising revolution, but it's like how, how to win, right? And how to avoid disasters of this nature. So I'm very excited about this, this presentation and discussion. So yeah, please come register for the winter school to come here, the lessons from the Indonesian revolution. Um, but yeah, the next one uh, we have is, we have Marx versus Bakunin on the history of the first international. But yeah, Julian, you want to say a few words about this? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's one that, that I think it's a, it's a really important topic because you, you have many debates in the left today. Um, and you can trace the roots of many of the debates we're having to, to the very first baby steps of the Marxist movement and of the workers' movement in general. And, you know, many, many youth today are attracted to anarchism. Bakunin was an anarchist. And so so the, the, these debates are, are extremely relevant today. And, and actually, the, the first international, it, it's an incredibly inspiring episode. It was, it was the first time uh, in history that the, the, the most advanced layers of the working class in the world were united in a single organization. And yet Marx came to play a leading role uh, in developing the organization and, and arming it with, with his ideas of scientific socialism. But then Bakunin joined the international a bit later. And yeah, there was a, there was a massive uh, po political conflict, but not just on questions of like economics and theory. You know, the question of the state is often the point of debate between the anarchists and the Marxists. But it was also in, in the conception of how to, to build the organization, how to build the international, what, what type of revolutionary organization do we need? So, 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 so this is a, it's an extremely relevant question. I think it's, it's totally justified to have this as, a, as part of the school on the, on the Revolutionary Party. Yeah, wonderful. Looking forward to that one. And uh, strangely enough, I believe uh, Julian is actually himself is the one who's giving this presentation. So if you like what Julian's saying, he's a great, good guy. He's a knowledgeable guy. You should come and hear him speak on this topic. He would never I'm tell not, you that he he was the one doing it, but he is. I'm, I'm not um, going to lie. It's a, it's a very rich topic. It's hard to condense in a, in a presentation, but uh, I hope you'll enjoy it at the school. <laughs> There's a lot of work put into it. I can tell you that. Wonderful. Uh, the next one is related to this. So related to the question of anarchism is the Spanish Revolution of 1936. So yeah, um, now Trotsky uh, wrote a lot about the Spanish Revolution. He was alive during the Spanish Revolution. He was he was obviously in, uh, intently following it and interested in, in the events and obviously the outcome, right? Uh, because if the Spanish workers had come to power in 1936, it could have broken the isolation of the Russian Revolution and completely transformed the world situation. Um, but yeah, Trotsky said the anarchists, the anarchist workers in Spain, were the flower of the Spanish proletariat. That's what he said. He said they could have made 10 revolutions. But unfortunately, due to a combination of bad leadership, again, you had this, the Stalinists here, who, who basically said ally with the liberal bourgeoisie uh, and disarmed the workers' militias, uh, took the, the occupied factories and telephone exchange and railways back from the workers' control and gave it back to the bourgeois. And this essentially did, similar to what happened in Indonesia, I mentioned it, it disarmed the workers and Francisco Franco, military, he set up a military fascist dictatorship until the 1970s. And so the price you pay for... Uh, for betrayal, for bad leadership, essentially connected to the question of the Revolutionary Party. Uh, it's not a small price. <laughs> so it's important that we learn these lessons. And it, this is related to the question of anarchism in the sense that the anarchists, like I said, were the flower of the proletariat. But their theory, like Trotsky said, anarchism was like an umbrella with holes in it. It's useless precisely when you need it. So precisely the question of the workers need to take power and start building a socialist society the anarchists refused to do this, actually, and this led directly to Franco. So we must learn these lessons. Yeah, and for this, we have an international speaker from Belgium who will be in town for this. Um, excited about that, Eric de Meester, who has a long uh, been involved in the Marxist movement for decades and has a lot of knowledge about this. Um, yeah, so the next uh, presentation, uh, I don't know, Julian, you want to say a few things about it? Yeah, yeah, we're really lucky to, to have uh, this one. It's called The Struggle for a Workers' Party in the U.S. And, and, uh, and actually, we will have one of our U.S. comrades, Tom Trotsky, from the, or 
the section of the IMT in the US Socialist Revolution coming to present on that. And actually, Tom wrote a, wrote a little booklet on this question. So, so, so I think this, this one promises to be, to be extremely interesting. And, and, and it's an extremely relevant question because for, for the last 150 years, you had this ping pong between the, the Republicans and the Democrats. And the US is one of the very few countries in the world where there's no party of the, of the workers, no, working, no party with roots in the trade unions and, and the workers movement. And the Democrats often presented that as the lesser evil, uh, but time after time, they, they betray any hopes that people have in them. Uh, and, and the Democrats really, you know, you see it through their funding, through the, the way the party functions. It's a party of the ruling class. And, and I think actually many Americans, more and more Americans are realizing this and looking for an answer, looking for a way forward. And, and I think there's a lot to learn also from the from early attempts to build a workers' party in the U.S. in the early 1900s, in particular. Uh, but but this is a very relevant question because it is what do we do today to help for, uh, bring forward the struggle of the working class in the most important country in the world for the socialist revolution? Frankly, so so this one will be will be extremely relevant, and and there's plenty of lessons for activists today. Yeah, and the final uh, session at the winter school that we want to talk about is uh, titled Ted Grant and the Fourth International. And I'm excited to announce that we're going to have Fred Weston from the International Secretariat of the IMT uh, in town, managing editor of Marxist.com. We're flying him in from London to speak on this question. Um, now, you might not know who Ted Grant is. You might not even know what the Fourth International was. Um, but this is the way that I explain it, uh, of the importance of this, ultimately. Um, so, you know, some might say it's difficult to be a Marxist today. I, I don't agree with that. But I would also say, imagine what it would have been like to be a Marxist in the 1950s in Britain, in the Western world, when you're in the middle of a massive upswing of the post-war boom. Extremely difficult. And so Ted Grant kept the flame burning. <laughs> He kept the, the organization, the ideas alive through the di most difficult period, uh, I think, for Marxists, is, is when capitalism has a boom, an, upper, an extended boom, actually, uh, through the fifth, throughout the 50s and 60s. And so Ted Grant kept the organization and the traditions alive. Um, they were extremely small. It would have been not the easiest thing. <laughs> it would have been a little bit depressing at times. But Ted Grant was famously never let that get him down. He had revolutionary optimism uh, till his till his last days, and yeah, he also developed Marxist theory, uh, uh, developed ideas on the colonial revolution that I think are second to none. You can read Ted Grant's explanations of what why the these this mass revolt in the in the colonial ex colonial world or colonial world like took the path that it did. Uh, also, his writings on strategy and tactics of how Marxists can build the forces of Marxism in certain conditions in like a country like Britain with mass illusions in the Labour Party, for example, are very useful for Marxists today. Um, and then also like he, he just defended a lot of key concept of Marxism against during the post-war boom, there was a lot of what we describe as like, there was, there was people moving away from Marxism, thinking that Marx was wrong on questions of class struggle, on questions of capitalist crisis. And one of those things, which I think is relevant today, is the question of Keynesianism. And this was, if you don't know what Keynesianism is, it's a body of basically like macroeconomic theory uh, developed by John Maynard Keynes, who was a bourgeois, uh, who basically, uh, yeah, believed in deficit spending, which is exactly what the bourgeoisie has, the bourgeois governments have been doing today, uh, to try to get the system out of the crisis and uh, to try to smooth over, I guess, the sharp edges of capitalism, I suppose. Um, and uh, yeah, Ted Grant, well, many Marxists actually bent to this and thought that the capitalist system had somehow avoided crisis because of this. Ted Grant defended the gen genuine ideas of Marxism against Keynesianism, said, no, Keynesianism doesn't actually change uh, anything. It might delay the crisis, but it doesn't eliminate the crisis of capitalism. Um, anyway, Ted Grant, a fundamental figure, Marxist figure, I'd say one of the greatest Marxists that ever lived. Um, and yes, it is, it is important to understand the history of the fourth, but also of the fourth international that was built by Trotsky, started by Trotsky, but also the role of Ted Grant. Uh, and Ted Grant is, is, was, was one of the, the main theoretician uh, of the international Marxist tendency. And so, yeah, we hold on to those ideas 
to this day. So really excited about, about that presentation and is directly related to building the Revolutionary Party. Um, well, yeah, uh, we've been going on for about an hour here. Um, I'd like to wrap it up. Those are the, the eight presentations that will take place at the Montreal Marxist Winter School that is occurring on the weekend of February 18th and 19th. I hope that this has whetted your appetite, has made you a bit hungry for learning more, and that you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna come and register for the Marxist Winter School. You can do so at marxist.ca/school. I hope that you I hope to see you there. I, me and Julian will be there. Um, yeah, like I said, there's over 300 people registered. This is going to be a fantastic event where we will learn uh, about how to build the Revolutionary Party and all the lessons from history of that. And we hope that you join us in doing so. You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca and we will be doing this podcast every week. So we hope that you tune in again.